Okay, invite you. It seems like we're in the book of Hebrews a lot lately, and uh, bits and pieces of it, yes. So I invite you again to turn to Hebrews chapter 12 now. Um, we looked a little bit at Hebrews 11. We've looked a little bit at Hebrews 10. And uh, one of these days, probably sooner than later in the grand scheme of things, not probably this calendar year, we're going to go through Hebrews and uh, camp out for that one because it's 13 chapters of a whole lot of theology, a lot of things about God. Um, but we're not there right now. We're still working through uh, just that what it means to pursue God and the, uh, the things that we endure, the troubles we face, um, the things that come before us as we do that. And so in Hebrews uh, chapter 12, if, if you've studied the New Testament at all, you've, if you've been a part of a memorial service for a Christian, um, you might have heard this passage, and um, it's worthy of, of repeating, and it's also worthy to remember that it comes at the, at the close after what we call the Hall of Fame of Faith, biblical characters that the author of Hebrews brings out to show us how God was faithful through all of the trials and the tribulations and the troubles that they faced in their lives, and, and how God blessed that. And at the beginning of that chapter, we'll go back and look at that a little bit, we get a definition, probably one of the only, well, probably one of the clearest, at least, definitions of what faith is. And that is in verse 6 of chapter 11. It says, and without faith, I'm sorry, verse 1, verse 1, and then verse 6. Now, faith is the insurance of things hoped for, the convictions of seen, things not seen. And verse 6, the, the result of that, without faith, it's impossible to to please him, forever who would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. So we see in chapter 12 now, after the writer of Hebrews goes through this whole list of people who demonstrated their faith in God and how God worked through them as they trusted in him. And I say that intentionally when, it's, when I say as they trusted in him because faith is a difficult thing to define. You know, faith at its core, we have this, um, the, the word that it comes from in the Greek is the same word expressed in different ways in its form. We have faith, we have believe, we have trust. All of those words are found in the same Greek root word as pistuo, and that is where we find the thought of belief or faith. And so when we come to this place, I can't help but think of that word trust, if you have faith in something, you trust that it is what you know it to be. And now, as we come before God, we see that this, this God that we read of, this God that we learn about, this God that we see express His love through His Son, we see that He is worthy of our faith because of His faithfulness. And so let's read verses 1 through 3 in chapter 12 not going to expand deeply on that because we're going to dive into some other verses along the way. But this is a beautiful passage, and it reminds us of our eternal reward when we place our trust in Jesus. Let's stand together as we read verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for who, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Lord, you, um, you alone are faithful and worthy of our worship. And I pray, Lord, that we would consider your faithfulness today. In Jesus' name, amen. Right, like I said, we could dive deeply into that, and we will eventually. But what we find here is that there is something that faith does for us. And you'll see a little heart shape up on the screen up there. Um, it's Valentine's Day, you know. We got a, The kids gave me a pile of hearts this morning, and um, I, I didn't, I should have read all the verses off of them, but I, I didn't get after that. But, you know, we see that, you know, this is the season of love. And I, and I kind of think that uh, Valentine's Day is a little bit of a floral department conspiracy. Uh, that you should always be showing affection for your sweetheart in your life. You should be, you know, buying them things. You should be doing things for them. You should be reminding them of their love, for, your love for them, those kinds of things. And all of a sudden, it's like Black Friday at the supermarket. Um, and, you know, anyway, what we find, though, is that love is not just one of those things that should be expressed one day out of the year when all the, the decorations in the, the stores are pink and red with hearts and, you know, fat little angels shooting their arrows and, and, and things like that. Um, no, what we find is that our love for the Lord is not that romantic sense of love. It's what, it's how it's expressed to us in Christ. And we see definitions, actually we probably see more definitions of love in the New Testament than you do particularly what faith would be. But what we find here is that the result of our faith is a prize. Now, we're in the middle of the Olympics right now. Today is Super Bowl Sunday. I, you know, you can't, I can't get really excited about anything that's happening in Los Angeles, California this afternoon. I'm just, the Rams and the Bengals, I just don't really care, honestly. Um, but I always like to see the guy who hasn't won, won something. So you may know who I'm rooting for this afternoon. Anyway, um, the, and they're, they're on both sides of the aisle on that one. So, you could, so I have no idea. We're going to watch a game at our house today. That's what I know. Anyway. Um, but you see the Olympics, and you see all these great stories, and all these stories seem to have a similar theme. You know, the stories that they do the big features on, on different people, is that, you know, this person found, had this goal of being in the Olympics throughout their lives. Someone in their family sacrificed for them to be there, and then some trouble happened along the way. Whether it was a job loss, whether it was a, that family member passed away, or, or whatever, you know, you always get this picture of, uh, endurance and, and overcoming things. And, and many times we view our faith the same way, that it's some kind of conquering victory. Now the difference there between our faith and what you would see in an Olympic vignette is that our victory has already been won if you're in Christ. Jesus has, has fought the good fight. He has paid the price for our sin, and we receive that reward of eternity, of the eternal promise of His hope that we would be with Him. Now, many people stop there. I know people who receive Christ and all of a sudden, this relief comes over. And there is a sense of relief because all of a sudden you realize that you don't have to work to earn somebody's affections. That God loves us because He is love. 
because he is good. We were talking about that in our class this morning, about his goodness and the fact that, yes, there is wrath and there is judgment, but it, there's also first that rescue that is offered. And that rescue is an eternal rescue that is found in Jesus Christ. But see, the, the challenge then of the Christian life is that when we receive that victory, then we are given a race to run. And our human logic has a hard time with that. Am I right? We realize, I've got everything I wanted. My hope is secure. I can just sit around and wait for the conclusion of time. And in the meantime, it seems like the world's falling down around our ears. The walls are crumbling, and they might be. And everything that we think we can, we can control, we realize that we can't. But see, the race that we run now is, is a gift. It, we run the race now because we are saved, if you have trusted Christ as your Savior. We realize that there was no way that we could get that victory on our own. And, and, I, and I realize that more than ever, the older I get, is that there is not a fast bone or a fast muscle. The lightning quick reflexes don't, don't exist in this guy, okay? You might be able to catch something real quick, but if you want me to go chase down something, I will say have fun because I am not fast. I'm like that sloth and that one, not fast, all right? So when we get to that place and... And we, oh no, that's Big Hero 6. I'm sorry, I'm getting all the guys mixed up. Anyway, you get this picture though. That's the, the, the thing you get is the movie character just bobbing around. That's me running a race, right? I remember when I was 14 years old and I was trying out for the football team, which lasted about two weeks. Um, they, they did a 40 time for us. I ran an 8-3-40. Now, if you don't realize something about that, that's really slow. And I never got much faster. So if I've run a 5K in my life now, my goal is always to beat 40 minutes, which is not impressive. But it is for me. And I usually don't. All right, anyway. Um, what we see, though, is that race is when we, we think we have to somehow earn affection through that. But our victory has already come in Christ because of his great love for us. The affection is already there. God will not love you and cannot love you more than he already does at this moment. I'm going to say that again. Happy Valentine's Day. God will not and cannot love you more than he already does. And he expresses that for us through his son, Jesus. And so as we live out the faith, we see that those who go before us have set the tone for the race we now run. And you get this picture, and I don't know how accurate it is, but when I read verse, verse 1 in chapter 12, I see this great coliseum, this great stadium, no COVID-19 protocols. Thousands and millions have put for us, rooting us on as we run the race that has been set before us. And as we, as we run towards something, here's the thing, is that when you're running a race, yes, you need to be mindful of obstacles. I've watched a lot of speed skating and that snowboard cross is amazing, all those fun things. There's always some obstacle in the way. It may not be that the ice is smooth, but, you know, in that short track speed skating, it's terrifying. They're going around and around in circles and they're tripping over each other. 
the biggest obstacle is your, your opponent. You've got to stay out of their skate, right? But you, you see that all of these people that go along with us, they're, they're trying to do the same thing. And, and, and there's, there's all these trials and all these struggles. And the devil's goal, now that we have this victory, is that we would stumble. Because our, our race is one where we are called to, to make disciples. And if he trips us up and gets our focus off the prize that is the, our faith in God our trust in Him, He knows that we are going to put the focus on ourselves. We're going to have a pity party. We're going to say, oh, how can God love me because I'm such a terrible person or I made this mistake or, or whatever. And I end up there just like anybody else does. Because all of us have the problem that we see here in verse 1. The sin which clings so closely, the sin that so easily entangles us. This is a, a thing that I draw to my mind when I start thinking about counseling people and, and, and how to get past it is, is casting off the sin that entangles us. This is the picture that comes. I've been told, my, my wife told me, you say that too much when you preach. You need to say something different. And, and not that you would change it, but that you would say it differently. And I can't, I can't, because this is what it is. This is the, 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 the sin that trips us. And I see it in me in so many different ways. And you probably see it in yourself. And it's really easy to see it in other people. I have two words at that moment. Stop it. We need grace. Yeah, there may be problems that people have in their lives, and we can help them through it. But it's not a sense of judgment that we should come to them in that place. It's a sense of grace and saying, how can we get you through this? How can we help you? through that struggle. And the way we do that is we keep our eyes on Christ. Our heart's gaze must be on Him. Tozer says, and one of the quotes I found in here is, faith is the gaze of a soul upon a saving God. Faith is the gaze of a soul upon a saving God. He also said later, he said, from all this, that's Hebrews 12, chapter 2, we learn that faith is not a once-and-done act, but a continuous gaze at the heart of the triune God, that is the Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Faith is not something that's just something you own. It's something that you live out. It is proving that God is your Savior. It's realizing that we need Him so desperately. There's some interesting pictures of it, and again, it's kind of funny how some things overlap. The Sunday school lesson I had this morning visited this passage, um, and it, but it, it comes from some other places. Let's go to John chapter 3, but we're not going to look at the verses you think we're going to look at. John 3.16, obviously, is something that comes to mind as soon as you say it. But I want to look at verses 14 and 15 before you get to 16. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, 
That's, this is the middle of the conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus has some interesting questions. And here Jesus brings out this crazy story from the book of Numbers. So, I'm glad you asked. Let's go to the book of Numbers, chapter 21. Now, Numbers, at, in some spots, is really confusing. In some places, it's really boring, unless you're an accountant. Because it's just, it's called numbers for a reason. There's, there's a lot of counting going on there. But there's some really wild stories along the way, too. There's some really neat things that happen. And, and the book of Numbers is kind of a pivot spot for the children of Israel. And it, we see that God gives them the opportunity in so many different places to trust Him. And the context of it is that they're really bad at that. They, they question God. They go, how could this God take us out of this place of Egypt? We had food. We had a place to sleep and this and that. And while they've been in Egypt, they were complaining about the fact that they were enslaved and being treated so cruelly. So they, you, they couldn't be pleased. You know anybody like that? I can look in the mirror on that. But... You get, you get some wild stories, and this is one of the, you get the story of Balaam and his donkey. That's a good one. Go find it later. Not right now. That's a good one. You get the, the spies in the wilderness. Uh, you get all kinds of great things. This is one of the more, more interesting ones. God, so many times during the Exodus, and this is during that time, he's had it up to however here, how much here is. And we say, how can a loving God punish? Well, Here's the thing is that he gave them plenty of opportunity. He's like, I'm done with it. I'm over it. You see this interaction. It's a fascinating picture. But this place of escape, Numbers 21, this is what Jesus is addressing to Nicodemus here in John 3, Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go to the ran on Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of, up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery servants, serpents among the people. Now, who wants to start complaining? And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. All of a sudden, they have a change of heart. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. No kidding. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a certain, if serpent bent, bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. It's crazy, right? First of all, what did they mean by a fiery serpent? Were they on fire? I think they're probably angry, right? You see that temperament, right? They were not happy. And we see that judgment falls on the people because of their disobedience. They've, God's had it up to there with them, and he deals with it in punishing them. But he is also merciful to them. 
When they return to him, he offers them a way out. Now, the question would be, what's happening here? What's happening with this serpent up on a stick? There's some things that happen later in the history of Israel with this as well. But we see that God tells him to do a certain thing. He does it. Then the people are to do a certain thing. And they do it, and they survive. So, what is saving the people? Is it the serpent that's saving the people? No, the serpent was a picture of their destruction. What saves them in that moment, this is a very temporary place right now, is their obedience, their trust. They realize that they need help. And Moses presents them the rescue on that. If you look at the serpent, you shall live. Now, the problem later becomes is that they, they, um, they start worshiping the snake. They make that into an idol. And that's actually not what the whole point of this is what, what it was. The point of this was, do you trust me enough to do what I'm telling you to do? And that's faith. And that's what blesses God. But the Israelites later in their history, they kept this wonderful stick. One of the kings goes and destroys it because they would worship it that stick. God does not tolerate idolatry. When you worship something, he takes it away. He makes it as hard on you as possible. And see what happened, the problem here, this obedience, the disobedience was that they just wanted their own way. And God was leading them in his way which was not the easy way. And it's never the easy way. The best path is often never the easiest. And so now he offers them a rescue, and this faith that they had to listen to the word of the Lord through Moses saved them. And so when you come back to John 3, Jesus uses this moment as a, uh, as a picture ultimately of what would happen with his own life. But instead of just being uh, a temporary rescue where they looked to the serpent and that obedience is what cured them, Jesus says, you look, the, the Son of Man will be lifted up as a penalty for the sin of the world. All the way back at the beginning of his ministry, you know, we got 17 chapters till we get to his crucifixion and resurrection takes a while to get there. Jesus is saying, in order to be saved, you must look to the Son of Man. And you, then he gets to verse 16. It's because of God's great love that he offers this rescue. There are other places as well. Ephesians chapter 2, we see that in there. And I skipped, I went way too far. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For, grace, for, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has created for you things he desires to do through you. And it's by his grace. And when we trust in him, he gives us the path to walk in them. It's all about faith. 
believing that God rewards those who earnestly seek Him. So when we come to that place, we must realize that the things we do don't save us. But the things we do prove who saved us. Now, humanity being created in the image of God is perfectly capable of doing good things and bad things. God has put it in us, I believe, the desire to make things better. But we have this sin thing. Sin trips us up. We're all sinners and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. The the picture then is that God rescues us from that trial. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Probably heard this verse before. There's a reason we keep going back to them, though. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. How does our faith grow? It's by living out what we find in his word. Why does teaching and preaching matter? Because that's the way people hear the word of the Lord. Now, God does do things where he just sets a Bible in somebody's path and they'll pick it up and start reading. But generally, it's far more like the Ethiopian eunuch that if they're reading the Bible, they need somebody like Philip to come along and explain it to them to help them understand how to be saved. And that's where our walk comes in. How we live out our life matters. And none of us are perfect. How do we do that? How do we live that out? I've got a, a long quote. and I've, known, I've heard this quote for a long time, and I didn't really realize it came from this book until I found it in this book. The Pursuit of God by Tozer, and I'm not putting it on the screen because it's long. But I love this paragraph. It's out of chapter 7, and it's rather lengthy. Someone may fear that we are magnifying private religion out of all proportion, that the us of the New Testament is being displaced by a selfish I. That's me, I. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Social religion is perfected when private religion is purified. The body becomes stronger as, as its members become healthier. The whole church of God gains when the members that compose it begin to seek a better and higher life. Now, does that make sense? I remember playing in, in, uh, in bands through my childhood, I was a trumpet player. I was usually, uh, there was not a lot of us. I was a decent trumpet player, so I usually got to play first trumpet. We were always had to tune. And in an orchestra, you always, for some reason, had to tune to the violins, which always, there was always a rivalry between the violins and the trumpets. So anyway, 
Violins don't like how loud trumpets are. Anyway, that violin was the standard. Whatever they played at that A would start with that person, concertmaster, and each player within the orchestra, or if you're in a band, each player that would tune to the probably a clarinet, unfortunately. Um, I'm sorry, I'm getting my band bias showing up here. Anyway, um, or whatever note they did, they tuned to one note. Why? Well, I can tell you why, because I've taught guitar now, and I've, I've tried to get guitars tuned to each other many different ways. One of the ways I only did once was the daisy chain, where you start with one, and then you turn that one to that one, and then you turn the next one, the third one to the second one, and the fourth one to the third one. And by the time you get to the 20th one, and you compare it to the first one, it's like playing that telephone game. It does not sound right. So you get these devices. Now I've got it on my phone, right? You can put a little tuner up, and you tune everything up, and I try to teach my students how to do that. And everybody tunes to the same standard. Now, here's the problem, is that when we start comparing our works to the next person's works, I'm doing, I'm doing better than they are. What happens? The standard falls. And pretty soon, it's like 20 guitars tuned one to the next to the next to the next. It's just not practical, and it doesn't work. You tune 100 pianos together. Can you imagine what if you did a daisy chain on piano tuning would sound like? Not too pretty. In our lives, yes, we should look at what, look at what we do and, and see what other people are doing, but we can never compare our own gaze to the person next to us. Why? Because our gaze is flawed. I can put these glasses on. I've had them a couple of years now that still help me see clearly. But as soon as I take them off, a bunch of colorful blobs. And some of you are doing this. I can tell. And that's about all I got. I can try on somebody else's sunglasses and go, are these prescription? Our lives, we are responsible to tune our lives to our Savior. And the gaze of our hearts shouldn't be comparing our work to somebody else's. And, you know, it's natural. I've realized that. But the sin nature is evil. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Go back to those verses again. Looking to Jesus, the founder, it says here, and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Going back to the Olympics, Super Bowl, whatever sports illustration you want to throw in there. Where ultimately is the competitor looking? They're looking at the victory. And how am I going to get there? What is our victory 
as believers in Jesus Christ. Our victories is to become more and more like him. I can't look more and more like him if I'm constantly comparing myself to you. Now, if you're comparing yourself to Christ, that can help. But ultimately, it comes down to who am I before the Lord? And when we have that individual responsibility, when we realize that responsibility, all of a sudden, our lives are in tune together to the glory of God. One of the things that got me this morning, listening to the church sing. You guys sound great together. And it brings glory to our master. Now let's live our lives set on that love. It's going to change how we relate to one another. Think about two pianos that have been tuned to the same standard. They're going to sound really good together, and you can make some beautiful music. Let's set our hearts and our minds on Jesus. Let's trust him more in this moment than we did in the last moment. Setting our eyes on him to see the victory he's put before us. Our Lord, you are good. And I think, I am so thankful you are because I am not. I pray that for everyone at this moment, in this room, listening online, whatever it may be, I pray, God, that we set our hearts and our minds on you. that we don't get caught up in the trap of comparison to one another or comparison to another church or, or, or whatever it may be, but that we set our minds and our hearts on you as the author and perfecter of our faith, that we, in doing that, see all other things fall away and your glory go before us. I know my sin, Lord, and I know that you are gracious I know that each one of us has things in our hearts and our lives that we are dealing with. Help us to trust you. And in that action of trust, bring you glory. Because you alone are worthy. Forgive us for failing you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Altar's open. If you need to pray.